Well, good morning, Redeemer. It's good to see you. I'm safe with you out on the field. That is uh, Stonewall Jackson. It's a Stonewall Jackson quote right there. If you don't know who Stonewall Jackson is, you should look him up. He's a famous southern general during the war between the states, the war for independence. And that was his line. Yeah, there was one time he was giving orders to a, a lieutenant sitting next to him, and this cannonball comes flying right between the two of them. And so he calmly gets out his pipe and lights it. <laughs> it's getting hot in here. Well, what we're doing today is looking at um, <laughs> one of the most bizarre passages that we have covered thus far. Brothers fighting against brothers. Everyone stabbing each other and falling down dead at the same time. This uh, particular passage, uh, I felt like I had to dig down into Moriah the, the, like, an, like a dwarf in Lord of the Rings to get into the gold of this thing. I, where did I dug too deep um, and unleash something horrible? But uh, what we're going to do is, is, is look at some context here, th- break this story down. I think it's oddity, and I think it's unusualness, and I think the fact that there's nothing else quite like it in the Old Testament is going to be the thing that, that gives us the key to understanding it. So before we open it, we're going to look at, uh, it's going to be Second Samuel chapter 2, uh, verses 7 through 32. But don't worry, we're going to move swiftly. But before we open the the word of God, let's pray together. Let's beseech the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this work, this book. We thank you, uh, Lord, for Joab. Um, We thank you for Abner. We thank you for Asahel. We thank you for these men, Lord, uh, these brothers of ours in the faith. Uh, We do not understand their actions. We do not understand uh, either their righteousness, Lord, or their sin. And and I pray, Lord, as we open your word now, that you would teach us about these men and teach us about their relationship to one another and to you, and that through it, we would better understand our relationship to one another and to you. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, I think we can all agree that peace is chief among God's blessings. Peace is glorious. Peace is a beautiful thing. Peace is a gift of God. What we have to consider, especially um, in the days we're in now, especially when you're a warlike people like you guys, we have to consider the fact that what, what the scriptures say about war generally. It says war is the rod of God's anger in the book of Isaiah. It says it's God's iron teeth in the book of Amos. And the hammer of the whole earth in Jeremiah whereby God dashes two nations together. That, that's what war is. War is, is God lifting up two nations and slamming them together as hard as he can. War is not sport. Indeed, part of the problem is that Abner takes the conflicts in Israel very lightly. Let's have some of the young men get up, he says to Joab, and fight hand-to-hand in front of us. Let's have a little sport. Let's have a little gladiatorial games. But Abner, before the end of the same chapter, wearies of the deadly sport calling on Joab to end it. He says, must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? Did he not count the cost? And what I find is that um, amongst us, there are some who will not draw the sword. There are some of us who will draw it all too quickly without considering the cost. There are some of us who will make sport, not realizing that the sport that we're making breaks out in actual civil war. Uh, This is something that I've come to realize. There are cold wars all over the place. There are cold wars in marriages. There are cold wars in culture. There are cold wars in churches. There are cold wars between churches. There are cold wars all over the place. 
And if you, if you deny this fact, if you resist this fact, if you ignore this fact, you will mess around with things you ought not mess around with, and the Cold War will become a hot war real fast. <laughs> okay, you will not fight through proxies. You will go hammer and tongs against one another. And, and, and what this passage in the end is about is this. Keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. Keep short accounts with your husband. Keep short accounts with your wife, your children, your parents, your neighbors, your friends, your, your pastors. Keep short accounts. If you do not keep short accounts, you will find yourself in a cold war that leads to a hot war. And m- many of us, when we end up in hot wars, don't know how we got there. Or we get there and we, we, we realize that it's bitterness. You know, this was not worth it. I never should have went to Gibeon. I never should have sat by the pool. I never should have suggested that we got into a debate about these things in a friendly manner. Before we enter the arena of conflict, we must count the cost. Rather, in addressing sin in our spouse or grabbing an angry Facebook post by the tail or engaging in apologetics, but if we, uh, especially if we are going to risk the peace and unity of fellow believers, we must be doubly sure and gird our loins. Right? If, if there are things that you need to deal with with other Christians, what you are struggling with, what, you're, what is at stake is the unity of the peace, the unity and peace of the brotherhood, the bonds that our relationship have. Now, the, sh- the sword should always be taken up boldly, absolutely, but humbly, and with wise hands. The reason we can trust, trust Jesus is because his sword is carried in scarred hands. Right? He has demonstrated his love. When you have a man like Jesus, you're like, look at what he's done. Put the sword in that man's hands. And, and what we have are too many non-scarred hands taking up the sword against their loved ones, against Christians, against each other, against their culture. Right? And, and, and this is something that... Uh, um, you have to count the cost. I learned this the hard way. Do not try to reform something you do not love. If you try to reform something that you do not love, you will destroy it. If you try to reform the church, if you think the church needs to be fixed and you don't love it, stay out of it. If, if you're going to go into the culture and you think your workplace needs to be reformed, you think it needs to be changed, and you don't love it, stop. Because you will become its enemy. You will become like Abner. You will find out that it is bitter. We must consider the subtext. We must consider the parties involved. We must consider what's at stake. War is not sport. Treating war like sport is the mistake that costs a great deal, and it seals Abner's fate. He takes things lightly that he ought not to take lightly, and it causes him his life. He unleashes the hounds of war, and in the end, he is devoured by them. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, we read in verses 8 through 11. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Now Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time in the time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, this is another one of those times where modern-day critical analysts get in here and they start creating all kinds of problems where there's not problems, okay? If Ishbosheth reigned for two years and David reigned for seven, it's, I, I think the obvious answer is that Ishbosheth reigned the last two years of David's reign. 
I mean, that, bam, get out a calculator, do the math, there you go. And, and I think the text suggests this, okay? If, you go, if Saul and his men go to war and they're destroyed, it's going to take a while to raise another army. If you're on the ropes because the Philistines are fighting you, it's going to take a while to rise up and, and resist the Philistines. It, it, it takes five years for them to recover after the death of Saul. And once they do, Abner decides that it's time to replace Saul with his son. So there David is, serving faithfully for five years in, in uh, his city in Judah, and, and there's no conflict internally in Israel. There's none. They, it doesn't start until right now. Right? And as soon as David becomes the king of all Israel, it says he, he moves immediately into Jerusalem. So he's king for seven years. The last two years, he deals with an internal struggle with his own people in which Ishbosheth rises up against him in rebellion. And then they have to put Ishbosheth down. And then he becomes the king of all Israel. That, that's the timeline. It's, it's actually not that complicated. If you sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil, you can figure it out pretty quickly. And, and, and that's why, right, these two armies, they're not at war. They come and they meet in this neutral location. They sit down on either side of a pool. Why don't they just see each other and fight? Well, because they're not at war yet, right? They've, they've had a long period where there's just two nations. Israel is broken into two nations. This suggests that there's no king over the other tribes immediately following Saul's death. Abner is the man. He's in charge. He's in charge of the military. You have a military dictatorship. He's holding the reins of power. And he's holding him for a while until they are strong enough to have their own king. And it's very humble of him actually to make uh, Ishbosheth the king when he could just be king himself. So Abner continually throughout the whole story becomes this kind of character where you don't really understand. He's extremely humble. Why wouldn't he just be the king? Well, no, because he believes in the household of Saul. He believes in the household of Saul. Now, what, what happens is a number of things that, that echo off of everything that's gone on with David. David is in Hebron. That's a very significant city, as we covered last week. And so when, if you're going to set up a king in Israel, you're, you're likely going to also set your king up in places that have significance. And, and that's what we see in several of the locations, especially Gibeon. Ishbosheth's enthronement is full of historical uh, locations with historical and covenantal import. And he's trying to rival David's historical and covenantal import of his city, right? He's competing with him. Now, the first is that Ishbosheth was crowned at Mahanaim, a Levitical city assigned to the Merorites, according to Joshua, east of the Jordan in the territory of Gad. It was associated with the patriarch Jacob. Right? So, David, you have your city, and it's associated with the, pa- the patriarch Abraham. Well, I got a patriarch city, too. <laughs> right? you're, you're not the only one who knows, who knows how to read the history and read a map. Now, since it's east of the Jordan, it like, they were likely escaping the ravages of the Philistines. Right? It's very helpful if you're going to set up a king that's going to rival the Philistines to do it in territory far from the Philistines. Uh, that's just good tactical decision-making there. Now, what we have to do for a second here is, is the story is opening. We're going to get to Gibeon, which is another location with import, but let's first think about Ishbosheth's name. Now, Ishbosheth's name in Hebrew has several different interpretations, and at different times in 1 Chronicles and here in 2 Samuel, they give the name slightly differently. And, there, and there's a reason for this. If you translate it directly out of the Hebrew in, in 2 Samuel, his name means man of shame, right? And, and that's always going to go well for you when you have a guy whose name is the man of shame. <laughs> But in 1 Chronicles 8 and 9, he's given the name Fire of Baal. Fire of Baal. Baal can be translated as master or husband, 
And the name could be taken in a positive or neutral sense. David uses it in 2 Samuel 5.20 when he, said he names the city Baal Perizim. So this word Baal could just mean lord or, or master or husband. But, right, if you're paying attention, Baal is actually the name of a Canaanite deity. And the name in First Chronicles identifies Ishbosheth as something like a Canaanite king, meaning he's a king like the nations have, right? And, and that automatically should recall a number of things in our minds. His father was a king like the nations. What did Israel want? They wanted a king like the nations. So Ishbosheth, right out of the gate, we're told, is a king like what the nations have. He's not a true Israelite. As we discussed before, David is the true Israel, and moving into the land, engaging in war with a man of Baal, David is retaking the land from the Canaanite Baal worshipers. So there's all this rich significance to what's going on here, and it's through these Hebrew names. David is taking the land, from Baal worshippers, from the Canaanites, Canaanites, it's as if he's reliving the whole conquest that Joshua had, had done. Now, the promotion of Ishbosheth as king is a continuation of the hostility of Saul's house towards David, but also an act of rebellion. Yahweh rejected Saul's house and chose David prince over Israel. Everybody knows this. It's not a secret. David has long since prom been promised the throne, a fact seemingly known by everyone. People have mentioned it in 1 Samuel 16 and 20 and 23 and 25. Everybody's talking about it. David is clearly the next guy. Even Saul had known of the appointment of David to be his successor. He says so in 1 Samuel 24, 20. So what is the household of Saul doing setting up their own king? So this is rebellion. This is Abner who does not want to be ruled by God, who does not want to be ruled by Yahweh, setting up his own system, setting up his own king, setting up his own situation. So now what we've, we've done here with Abner, a, a humble guy, right, a guy who otherwise made this wise decision of not making himself king, we see that he stands with certain characters in the scriptures. In Psalm, in Psalm 2, verses 2 to 3, he is a man who's conspiring against the Lord anointed. He joins Herod and Pontius Pilate, according to Acts 4:27 to 28, who are, uh, who are opposing the anointed of the Lord. The press release of the Jews in Luke 19:14 is, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's what they said of Christ. And that's what Abner is saying. I don't want Yahweh ruling over me. I don't want any part of his anointed. I will have my own anointed. Now, does that sound like Abner is in a good place? Does that sound like Abner takes the word of God seriously? Does that sound like Abner takes God seriously? Now, David's impending civil war, which is about to open, foreshadows the later division of the kingdom after Solomon. The names are used here, Israel and Judah. Well, Israel and Judah don't become these two separate kingdoms until 1 Kings 12. So it's this little moment here where they use this language, clearly showing that the book was compiled later by prophets who understood that there were these two kingdoms. They see in what's going on here the foreshadowing of the division of the kingdoms. In the time of Judges, divisions among the tribes broke out several times. There were other smaller skirmishes, other civil wars. Judges 8 and 12 record them. In David's reign, the tension is evident between supporters of David and Saul. How has Saul received David so far? He pursued him and pursued him and pursued him and attempted to kill him. Now you have the house of Saul setting up their own king. Now, the conflict between Joab and Abner is symptomatic of what's going on. Now what you have are, are the followers of Saul pursuing the followers of David, just like Saul pursue David. You, you, right? Saul has set this whole thing up. 
everybody is acting like Saul. He was an evil king, and he pursued David's life, and so we're with Saul, so we're going to pursue the servants of David. Now, this episode demonstrates a very important principle, one that I learned at a very young age. (laughs) When you're out of fellowship with your brother, don't play tackle football. Seems simple, right? When when, when you are not getting along with your brother, especially if he's four years older, especially if he's about 50 pounds on you, do not go out and play tackle football. Now, if you have sons or you were, if you grew up, I I think this is readily apparent, right? I I remember, um, there's a thousand stories I could tell about this. I remember uh, there was a guy I was not getting along with, and the teacher was like, oh, now we're going to wrestle, right? And, And somebody's arm got dislocated. Why? Because we had all this tension from the playground that had not been resolved. And what, what we have to do before we, it, it seems sort of blasé how we get into this next section here. All oh, these two armies are just out marching around. There's a bunch of family members. It's been a while. It's like a little reunion. Let's sit down by this pool and chat. Well, there's all this tension, though. There are rebels amongst these guys. These guys are not on the same page. They are, they are out of fellowship. And so suggesting that you take swords and shields and go onto the field and fight one another seems really dumb. It just seems stupid. It's a stupid, foolish thing to do. And, and I think this is where we start to pick up some steam about what this story is actually about. Okay? There is all this subtext, all this stuff going on between these two groups that they have not worked out. And unlike David, right? what did David do in the, in the, so far? He found out that Saul was dead. Did he just rush back into Israel? No, he, he slowed down. He asked God what he, if it was time to go back. And he didn't just ask God if it was time to go back. He asked God what city he ought to go back to. He, he does not just presume to read his circumstances and make decisions. But you have these knuckleheads, right? All this swagger, all these chariots, all these swords, all these spears. And, and there is clearly strife between the two of them. But they think they're going to sit down and just have a little fun. They think they're going to sit down and that all this other stuff that is this cold war that's going on isn't going to break out in a hot war. And and nobody stops and thinks, what is going to happen if we do X? You just have all this relational laziness, all this relational mindlessness. Like, who are you dealing with? Who are they to you? Who are they to God? We've already seen David is very concerned about the unity of the people of God. He's concerned about the household of God. He's not throwing Saul under the bus. He's singing songs about how great he was. And you got these knuckleheads who, who are going to literally gamble with the unity of the people of God. They're going to make sport out of it. They're going to make a joke out of it. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the other side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And they each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, and they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the Field of Sword Edges, which is at Gideon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now, having established Ishbosheth in the Transjordanian town 
Abner makes his way to Gibeon. And this is another mystery. What are these guys doing? Why are they out marching around? Right? Why, in response, does Joab and his men go marching around? What, there, there is very little explanation as to what's going on. It, it, it's very, very confusing, really. Why are these guys out wandering around? Why are they have all these men with them? Why are they have all these weapons? And why is when one moves, the other moves? Like, there, there is clearly a Cold War, right? There's clearly a Cold War here. And this is what happens. Okay, so the Russians put 100,000 troops on the, on the border of Ukraine. Well, what does Ukraine do? Well, we're going to put 150,000 troops on the border. And, and that's what you kind of have here. You have this stalemate, this standoff. And, and, and again, it, it's a stalemate by a bunch of knuckleheads. Not guys who are taking seriously the unity of Israel like David. Now, there, there are a number of things textually that maybe is going on, but it's a little confusing. At, later on in 2 Samuel 21, we're told that Saul actually tried to take Gibeon. He tried to take that city as a, his royal city. He tried to kick out the Gibeonites, which is a tribe that's not of the house of Israel. Now, if, let's, it's always important to do our catechism. Who are the Gibeonites? Well, the Gibeonites are geniuses, I might add. Okay? So back when Joshua was taking over the land, there's this tribe, and they thought, oh, no, we're going to get wiped out, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pretend like we came from really far away and ask for Joshua to, to save us. So they get out these clothes that look ragged, and they get these food bags that look ragged, that look empty, and they go to Josh, Joshua, and they're like, uh, hey, please, take us in. So Joshua takes them in, and they make a covenant with them. And then God's like, what are you doing? This is the Gibeonites. This is their city called Gibeon. Hello, read a map, Joshua. And you just let them, you just made fellowship with them. So, so this, this city remains. These people remain. And, and so they're not Israelites. Saul tried to get rid of them and take over their city. He tried to destroy them off the face of the earth. So perhaps moving on Gibeon is part of this plan that Saul had before he died, that now that Ishbosheth is there, they're trying to set Ishbosheth up in the city that Saul wanted to be set up in. But what's interesting is that Joab then it actually invades what is territory that's not theirs. He rides to this city, and they sit down at this pool. And, and, and oddly enough, there, he's actually been the aggressor now. He's moved into territory that is not under uh, David's jurisdiction. Later, what we're going to see with Abner, I'm going to give away, he's going to try to switch sides, just like the Gibeonites did. So if you have uh, David, who's the new Joshua, you have Abner, who's the new Gibeonite. So this association with Abner and Gideon, Gibeon, Sorry, Gibeon. Uh, is supposed to, in our minds, show us what kind of man he is. He's clever, and he's looking out for number one, right? He will go with Ishbosheth for as long as that train looks like it's going to make it into the station, and, and as soon as it's not, he's going to switch trains. So you have, again, all this subtext going on. What is Abner's motivation here? What is Joab's motivation? Did David tell him he could do this thing? Nobody says, hey, give me a writer, take a message back to David, and find out what he wants us to do. They're like, no, 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 no. These guys here, look at their swords and shields. Let's, let's sit down. Let's sit down in this giant pool. And they've discovered these pools. They're like 80 feet deep, 20 feet wide, and they're sitting now on either side. Now, what's fascinating here, and what really opened this whole thing up, is the word that is translated as compete. Now, it's normally used for play or amusement or entertainment or sport. It's an alternative form of the verb laugh, which in the Pentateuch was the basis for the name Isaac. Now, Pentateuch is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the word Isaac. So these guys are going to get together at the Pool of Gibeon and Isaac together. 
Now, when the uh, Philistines brought Samson out to amuse themselves in the temple of Dagon, this verb was used to describe their sporting in Judges 16. The same verb is translated as laugh in that famous line from uh, Psalm 2, verse 4. God sits in the heavens and Isaac's at them. He laughs at them. He's amused by them, by those conspirators. It's also the word later when they bring the um, ark into the temple, into Jerusalem, they they make sport before it, Isaac before it. Whatever the sport, the word conveys the idea of mocking or pretending or amusement. So what Abner is proposing then is a tournament, a gladiatorial show, not a battle to the death. He says, hey, we got all these guns, let's use them, right? Let's put a bottle behind each guy and we'll draw the gun and see who's fastest, shoot the bottle behind him. That's what they used to do in western towns. You know how many of those ended up in somebody actually getting shot? Let's take these swords and let's see how good our tribes are. So what you have are 12 and 12 Isaacing. They're trying to determine between these two groups who are the true um, descendants of Abraham. They're trying to flex on one another, saying we are the true heirs of, of the kingdom of God. That's why it's called Isaacing, right? Because uh, this, this word is full of meaning. He's the son of promise. They're trying to determine who the sons of Abraham are. That's why there's 12 on each side. And how does it go? Right? I, I mean, in, in this test, do you think God is going to choose a side? Not only did the the sport turn bloody, but it left the outcome completely unsettled. If Abner and Joab had taken a moment to contemplate the outcome, they would have said, listen, God is not in this. If we go to war with one another, everybody suffers. Everybody uh, is is full of bitterness. Everybody dies. Everybody is is full of strife. There are no winners if Israel, Israel goes to war against Israel. Instead, the symbolic civil war turns into a real civil war. It breaks out in warfare. How could it not? Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, as they say. This symbolic game turns bloody, and the hostility laying between the two houses erupts into actual warfare. Now, this is what I'm saying. Where is David during all of this? Right? What would David have done if he was here? But you've got these boys playing at war, and, and, and foolishly, and what happens is a real war breaks out. Now, and in case you haven't quite gotten the, the point yet, this is followed up, Right now, brothers are killing each other. Well, there's another brother who gets killed, and a very and the story is actually very similar. And, it's, and God is really trying to make a point. We read of Asahel in verses 18 to 23. It says, "And the three sons of Zariah were there: Joab, Abishai, and Asahel." Now, Asahel was as swift as a foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, "Is that you, Asahel?" And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize upon one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. It brings them to a standstill. Now, there's a lot of stuff here. Josephus says Asahel was so fast he used to race horses. Now, I've actually seen this done before. It's quite amazing. Uh, There was a football player a couple years ago who raced a thoroughbred, uh, and he lost. But Asahel's that kind of guy. 
he, he was recorded as racing horses. He's very fast. But here's the question. He's chasing Abner. Abner's trying, he knows exactly who it is because this is the household of Israel. Everyone knows everyone. He says, I know who you are. I know what kind of brother you have. Please leave me alone. Now, does it, does it appear that Asahel has determined what he's going to do once he catches up to Abner? God has given him the ability to run really fast, and he's using that to catch up to Abner, and he gives no thought to what's actually going to happen when he reaches Abner. Because literally, think about this, okay? He, the, the, it, it gets lost in translation. But Abner is finally like, listen, I, I got I to gotta turn and fight you now. But he doesn't even turn the point of his spear towards him. He turns the butt end of his spear, and, and Asahel literally impales himself upon it because he's running so fast. And you're like, um, Asahel, at what, like, you know, stop. <laughs> Draw your sword. Fight with the guy. You're just running, and you're, you're so focused on the fact that you can catch him, you're not thinking about what's going to happen when you catch him. Now, spears back in the day were sharpened on the bottom so that you could stick them in the ground. So there is a point on the butt end of the spear, but Abner is, even now, trying to show a great deal of respect towards a brother. I don't, I don't really want to fight you. I'm not even going to turn my spear towards you. I'm just going to give you the butt end, and I bet he's as surprised as what happens as anybody. Because here comes Azahel just sprinting as fast as he can around the corner, right, like he's Hussein Bolt, and just runs right onto the end of the spear. And then everybody is quite shocked because who is his uncle? David. So not only has Abner caused a civil war, he just killed David's nephew. So, I, you know, worry about Joab, worry about David. What do you think David's going to do when he, f- he finds out that you killed him? But in Abner's defense, he tries to get the young man to stop several times. But do these seem like wise young men? Do these seem like young men who are counting the cost, who have sharp weapons, who know how to use them, who, who, know, who know what they're for? Or does it seem like a bunch of braggadocious morons? Does it seem like a bunch of high school sophomores? Oh, I can catch that guy. Yeah, that dude's got a spear, right? You've got to stop just shy of where the spear point is. I mean, if you're going to catch somebody. And, and this opens up this whole ma- this madness now. Because Joab, as we're going to find out, is not a good guy. Joab is not a man who follows the law of God. He takes this personally. He wants a vendetta. What we see here is that David is in charge of a bunch of guys, even on his side, which is the right side, which are a bunch of bloodthirsty dudes who are just into battle for battle's sake. Right? These are mercenaries. These are men who just like to go out and make sport out of war. David takes war, especially with the household of Israel, very seriously. And part of why this whole struggle happens is nobody else seems to take it as seriously as he does. What the church needs are men who understand the unity of the, of the people of Christ, what it, what it means to be a unified church, what it means to address issues and sins inside the household of God. Because what we have are, are too many men who are like Azahel and Abner and Joab. Azahel trusted in his swiftness, he trusted in his strength, and it was his undoing. Right, the very right. It's uh, there's that famous Scottish runner, who is a Christian. He said that when he runs, he feels God's pleasure because God made him so fast. Right, so God gives him this gift and he uses it to please the Lord, and the Lord is pleased with his work. Here is Asahel taking a gift that God gives him, and he's using it to destroy himself. Now, isn't that like a lot of people? How many of us are using our strengths that God has given us without really considering where it's taking us? What's the end here? Right? If you're really good at making money, what's a conceivable end to that? It, right? If you're really good at debating, what's the po- what possibly could happen if you're really good at debating and you go out and you're just all the time pushing at people and debating and debating and debating and debating? 
Too often we get carried away, as Asahel has done, by his strength, not counting the cost, not realizing where it's leading him. Asahel's swiftness, which he trusted too much, was the cause of his ruin. Now this teaches us not to be too confident in our strengths or in any gift, whether inward or outward, but to give thought as to where that strength is taking us. Right? What are strengths and blessings that God has given you? Where is it taking you? There are a lot of people, a lot of people, whose strength is to resist tyranny. Now, that, what, what that has done in a place like Ottawa is carried the people who, who stood up to the government there quite far. Now, thankfully, the people there have count the cost, and they can stand up for it. But what all, what all too often happens is people who are like, yeah, let's take on the man, and they find out the cost of taking on the man is too high. Okay? So our heritage is to, to what? Resist tyranny. Well, you've got to be very careful with that because you've got to think about where that takes you. Right? If, you, if you end up in a jail cell and you're like, man, how did this ever happen? This is awful. And, and you rely too much on what you think is your heritage and your strength, and, and it takes you somewhere to your ruin, and you were not prepared for it. Do you think Asahel was chasing Abner so he could die? And, and I, there is a lesson here that is multifaceted and, and layered, and I think we all have to consider this. He literally is carried away by his own skill until it, he's destroyed. Now, what happens is his brothers take up the charge. Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amah, which lies before Gaia, and the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Now, this is very strange to me, and I can't really make up my mind about it. Because once you get going, why stop? I mean, if you're going to go here and you want to bring glory to the name of David and you want to destroy your enemies, why? Like, you foolishly got into this and then you don't even have the resolve to see it through. Because when, when, when it's a small band, right, I understand, it's Custer's last stand here, it looks like, who knows. But it's like you've whooped them pretty good so far, why stop? And there are other times, and, and other times in history, I know this, this happened, like, um, speaking of Stonewall Jackson, where he finds out that his men did not pursue the enemy and pursue the enemy and pursue the enemy, and he's furious. And, and he, he actually, like, court-martialed all these guys going to shoot him because they failed to pursue the enemy to the end. So, I, I mean, I'm glad they stopped, but I don't understand why they stopped. It doesn't make any sense. If you're going to go there, go. If you're not, stop. Right? I mean, Luther said it. If you're going to sin, sin boldly. If you're going to sin, go big. Okay? If you're going to lose your temper and you think it's a righteous cause, go all the way. Don't stop by halves. And, and, and there's an idea here that, I, again, it's, this requires a great deal of sanctified wisdom to understand. But there is a history here, and I think that's why they stop. So if you go back to the book of Judges, the Benjaminites act up, and, and Israel, instead of just going and restoring their brothers, mount up and go to destroy Benjamin off the face of the earth and get whooped. Okay? And then they regret their attempts to destroy them. 
So I'm sure on some level the, these, these other men of Israel are standing there and they're seeing Benjamin on top of a hill. They're like, this reminds me of something. This reminds me of something. Oh, yeah, we tried to do this one other time and it didn't go well and everybody regretted it. And that's recorded in the book of Judges. And I think that's Joab's motivation. But what I like is Joab's little jab here. He says the men would have given up, would, would not have given up the pursuit until morning time. Okay, my guys are not tired. We would have we whooped you already. We would have kept whooping you. So just before I leave, I just want to point out the fact that we weren't done whooping you. Okay, now we'll go. And you're like, Joab shows what kind of man he is here. He's, he's trying to flex on a guy he's already beat once who's asking him as a brother to stop fighting him. There is some serious foreshadowing here, though, because these two men are not done with one another. They're not done with one another. But instead of doing it in open warfare, they're now going to become these... Um, they're going to do it behind the scenes, and they're going to do it in the dark. Okay? If you have a conflict like, th- like this with somebody between these two men, it's better to do it in the light of day under the auspices of actual warfare opposed to the cloak and dagger nonsense they're going to go on and do next. That's why I don't, I, I, they should have just pursued it to the end, but they're not wise, as we've seen. <laughs> they're not wise. Now, the final failure of Saul is the protracted civil war that follows. Okay? As the leaders go, so go the people. It is not the glory of sons to carry on their father's wickedness or foolishness. It is not the glory of families to carry on the envious vendettas of their foolish members. Uh, This is a story. I knew these two brothers. We all played ice hockey together. And they had neighbors that were were on a different team in the same league. And the parents hated each other. The kids had never really met because, you know, the family never talked. But those guys would just go at, like, they would go after this other kid in the, on the hockey team, and they had no, no idea. They would just, like, my parents hate your family, so I hate your family too. And they would check them and hook them and trip them, and uh, they'd get into fights all the time. It, it was always maddening because it's like, guys, how about we play the game, right? I don't know what this weird thing is you got going on with that family. And the league finally had to inter- intervene. And what you see here is it's no glory to the sons of, of Saul to carry on this vendetta he has against David. But all too often, all too often what happens? Right? What happens? Do, do our, our sons and our daughters listen to us around the dinner table and hate the things we hate even though they don't understand them? Do they despise people even though they, they don't understand them? Um, you know, in, in your house, hypothetically, have you ever heard one of your kids say something disrespectful about a grown-up and, and you're shocked and appalled and, you found, and, and your, your beloved wife wink, wink, nudge, nudge, is like, well, you know, you said that. You said that and they heard it. So Saul has no respect or love for David. His descendants have no love or respect for David. And and here you are, the the sins of the fathers visiting the sons, and it's ruining the household of Israel. Now I'm just going to close real fast here before I wrap this up with the the application part. Um, They they do a little math here at the end, and it's quite significant. Okay, okay. what, what ends up happening is they record the numbers. 348 Benjaminites died in battle versus seven of David's men. Now, I, I, as an as a amateur military historian, that in any book in any time period is what we call a rout. Okay? <laughs> That's called a whooping. When you have that many people die in comparison to one another, that is a massive defeat. Now, what, what's funny is that given how many people David has, it's 3% of his military in one co- conflict. This is going to be a costly, costly fight. And what we see is a little bit here is who God actually prefers, right? 
who God actually prefers. He prefers the forces of David. When you have these armies out there, they're all trained together. They all went to the same military school. They all learned how to sword fight from the same people. And you have one side clearly outdoing the other side. It is demonstrating something from heaven. Now, here's what I want to say. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? Okay, now, I mean, I can say again, if you, if you have a brother and you're at a fellowship, don't play tackle football. Uh, there's a lot of ladies here. I don't generally think you play tackle football with the other ladies. So what I want to do is give a couple of modern-day examples and, and try to get our heads wrapped around how this actually applies to us. Now, there was a few years ago when I was, I was a professional teacher, and I had a disciplinary issue that I didn't get to right away. And the kids that I had to discipline were very angry about it. Okay? So later in the afternoon, we have a class discussion. And I'm saying things, if, if you guys don't know yet, I tend to say things that are maybe a little, little controversial. So I say some controversial things. And these young men who are angry about what's going on, and I'm trying to make sport with them, do you think they were very respectful or kind? No, right? <laughs> it became very clear. I was like, okay, now what we're going to do is watch a movie. We're going to just turn on YouTube and watch a video because we clearly can't discuss these things right now because you guys are angry. Okay, I, you don't sit down at the Pool of Gibeon and say, let's sport for a little while when there's all this Cold War going on. And so this minor issue became a major issue. And I actually felt very bad about it because what, what I ought to have done is just discipline them on the spot, not say, come back and see me at the end of the school day. Now, as a parent, right, that, it, it's exactly how it works at home. You don't, you don't say, hey, next week I'm going to discipline you for this because then you've got the kid walking around with that attitude for a week. Right? You keep short accounts. You deal with it now. That's one application of this. Another application of this is imagine for a moment you have two spouses on the phone talking about money, which is never, ever, ever controversial in a, in a, in a household. And, and, and the wife offhandedly mentions the fact that the husband doesn't provide very well. Yeah, you just don't really provide for us very well. Uh, okay. okay. Uh, you want to talk about that? Not really. Okay. Hang up the phone. Later, in the, later that evening, you're trying to bring it up. You're just getting passive aggressiveness. Now, do you, here's what I'm saying. Is that husband going to want to talk to the wife about serious financial decisions they have to make? Is he going to want to take her on a date? Is he going to want to sport with her, play around with her, when you've got this cold war going on? Now, this is what we do to one another. The whole point of this is the relational carelessness. And I don't know how to say it besides that. They just aren't thinking through who they are, what the issues are, and what, what the, what, where is this going? If I chase this guy and, because I want to fight him, at some point he's going to stop and want to fight me. Now, I, I, and this has happened. I've had people, I'm going to keep the personal story to a minimum, but the, I, I've had people be like, man, uh, I, need to, I need to talk to you real bad. I text, I got to talk to you, email, I got to talk to you, I got to talk to you. Pursue, pursue, pursue. And I'm like, man, I really don't want to. But okay, fine, I'll do it. So I sit down with the person, you know what happens? They're just totally unprepared to say anything. They never actually thought they'd catch me. <laughs> and have you ever had this before? Where you're like, I have this issue, I, I have this debate, and I'm right, and I'm going to pursue this, and I'm going to pursue this, and I'm going to pursue this. And then what I never actually expected was to get to the point where I see this person in public. Because that's happened. There, there's someone I know on Facebook who has had this long debate, right? And they were just pursuing the guy and pursuing the guy and pursuing the guy. And then they met in person. And, and it was like they never thought that that would actually happen. And there's all this relational carelessness. And this is what we do. 
We say things, and we don't think about the import of what we're saying. We do things, and we don't think about the impact it has on one another. It happens in our marriages. It happens with our children. Here's another example. Okay, you got a dad who's, um, say, his compliments come rarely. Okay? And, and, and he, he has a son playing basketball. And they have halftime. And he goes down in front of all the other kids. He starts telling his kid how to play better basketball. Right? Tearing him down right there in front of everybody. Super helpful, Dad. Thanks. Now, later, when Dad wants to play a one-on-one game, do you think there's going to be some elbows thrown? Okay, this is what I'm talking about. And this is a complicated story, right? It took a number of crowbars and levers in order to lift the stones of this thing to see what was underneath it. But, I, but we talk about sin all the time, and we say phrases like, you know, keep short accounts, but we don't really think about what this means. And a story like this helps us really grasp it. You are having a cold war. You are having them with your siblings. You're having them with your spouses. You're having them with people in church. You're having them with coworkers. You're having them with neighbors and family members. And, and you're like, yeah, you know what? I hate you, but let's have Thanksgiving dinner together. That's what we're talking about. And, and we go on with this stuff, thinking, ah, oh, it'll be fine. Right? One day, there'll be wine there. I'm sure nothing will be said that's inappropriate. <laughs> You're like, I just got a spear through my stomach sticking out my back. Right? I pursued this thing because it's family. I pursued these people. And then I got there, and I didn't really know what, what to expect. I wasn't prepared for the conflict when it came. Now, who are you having a cold war with? Right? Who, are you, who do you have in your life where there are under, there's undertow issues, passive-aggressive things here, relational carelessness, and we think, ah, oh, love covers a multitude of sin, or I only have to see him once a week, or ah, right? Oh, that's fine. We'll sit down by the pool, give you together, right? We'll sit down by the, at this table together and just make sport. When there's all these issues going on. And then how well do you think it's going to go when you have issues that you haven't dealt with, and then you're going to go and try to address someone's sin like you're supposed to? What, what we discover in the first two chapters of 2 Samuel is that the unity of God, and the unity of God's people, I should say, is the most important thing in our lives. It's the most important thing in our lives. Right? Because why? Why? Because it's, what, it's, it's the charge that's been given to us. Christ came from down out of the heavens. He died for you to unite you to one, to one another, to, ma- to bring you into his household. Now, is his household, does it require be, um, us conducting ourselves in a certain way, having a certain amount of unity? This unity that he gives us, do you think he's, we're not going to have to answer how we've treated it? When we get to heaven, he's like, listen, right? I made it possible for all of you to be as unified as Father, Son, and Spirit. How did it go? We're like, well, you know, not well. <laughs> the, the cold wars in our lives are the reason there are hot wars. And don't be surprised when there are hot wars if there are things you're never dealing with. We have got to take the unity of the people of God more seriously. Now, let's look at David for a second. How did he respond to the death of his enemy? How did he respond when he found out Saul died? He sang a song about how great Saul was. He, and he teaches this song to Israel because he wants Israel, the people of God, to sing. He is very, 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 very protective over the respect of the Lord's anointed and the unity of the people of God. And it's his driving force. We're going to see now, he's going to come back into the story after this nonsense, and he's going to try to patch it up. 
and people are going to be angry with what he tries to do because to him, the most important thing is that this is your God and my God, and therefore we are together with him. And that unity is what he's going to strive for and strive for and strive for. And all these people are going to try to take it from him and pick away at it. And it requires serious people who are serious about their own sin, who are serious about discussing hard things. Because too many of us have cold wars going on. And they may never break out into hot ones, but, but, but it cools the whole community. It cools the unity of the whole body. And, and, and we're going to go out into the world and we're going to deal with the issues out there when we can't even deal with the issues in here. With our relational carelessness, what are we teaching the world? It's okay to hate brothers. It's okay to talk about them. It's okay to make sport out of the unity of God. It's okay to pursue one another. It's okay to hunt one another. It's okay to rebel against one another. The unity of the church is, a, is serious business. And the love that we have been given from God is the calling that we have to show to one another. And, and, I, and I, too many of us are Joabs and Azahels and Abners about it. We, we take it lightly. We, we don't treat it with import and seriousness. It's not a motivating factor in our lives. So as you're reading these stories, I, I just the reason that David had a heart after God, the reason he's an example, is because he loves the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates. And he's not a modern, right? So he loves and hates different things than you. And what we need to do is look at characters like him and learn from him. What ought we to hate? What ought we to love? What is most important? How are we to act about these things? How are we supposed to respond to our circumstances? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Joab and Abner and Asahel these faithful um, men in the house of Israel, Lord, whose sins um, cause them to fall and cause them to stumble. Lord, I, we have to remember that these are people who are in your household and, and that we should judge them lightly for the same judgment that we use for them will be used for us. I pray, God, that we would love these stories, that we would read these stories and learn from these stories how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And amen.